Hi, my name is Andy Chamberlain. I'm a writer and creative writing tutor, and you are listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. And welcome to episode 77 of the Creative Writers Toolbelt. In the last episode, we looked at the importance of the sound of writing, and we focused on some of the problems that occur with the sound of a piece of writing and explored some techniques that we can use to solve those problems. In this episode, we're going to look at a number of very different examples of excellent writing, and they are excellent for many reasons, but the one area where I think they all excel is in this area of how the writing sounds. They are deliberately different in terms of style and authorial voice, but each of them can teach us something. And because they're very different, the benefits that they bring to their respective stories is also very different. And what I hope to be able to demonstrate by sharing these pieces of work with you is the simple truth that if you can get the sound of your writing right, the benefit will flow to all of the other dimensions of your writing, from character to theme and from plot to setting. So in each case, I'll read the passage and then highlight two or three aspects where I think the sound of the writing excels and can teach us something. So the first two pieces feature in one of the books that I mentioned in the last episode, and that book is Steering the Craft, A 21st Century Guide to Sailing the Sea of Story by the author Ursula K. Le Guin. Now this first piece is by Rudyard Kipling, and it's from his Just So Stories, And this particular passage is from the story, How the Rhinoceros Got His Skin. Once upon a time, on an uninhabited island on the shores of the Red Sea, there lived a Parsi from whose hat the rays of the sun were reflected in more than oriental splendour. And the Parsi lived by the Red Sea with nothing but his hat and his knife and a cooking stove of the kind that you must particularly never touch. And one day... He took flour and water and currants and plums and sugar and things and made himself one cake which was two feet across and three feet thick. It was indeed a superior comestible, that's magic, and he put it on the stove because he was allowed to cook on that stove and he baked it and he baked it till it was all done brown and smelt most sentimental. But just as he was going to eat it, there came down from the beach, from the altogether uninhabited interior, one rhinoceros, with a horn on his nose, two piggy eyes, and few manners. And the rhinoceros upset the oil stove with his nose, and the cake rolled on the sand, and he spiked that cake on the horn of his nose, and he ate it, and he went away, waving his tail, to the desolate and exclusively uninhabited interior, which abuts on the islands of Mazandaran, Socotra, and the promontories of the larger equinox. So what do we make of this passage? Well, first, there is what Ursula K. Le Guin describes as the exuberant vocabulary, phrases like more than oriental splendour, and he went away waving his tail to the desolate and exquisitely uninhabited exterior. The point about these phrases is that they successfully conjure up a richness of image in the reader's mind. They give colour, literally, and life to this piece. They help convey meaning and mood. We also find a kind of rhythm in some parts of this piece. In this sentence, for example, And one day he took flour and water and currants and plums and sugar and things. If you read it aloud, you can hear the rhythm of the list. Flour and water and currants and plums and sugar and things. And if you listen even more carefully, you can hear that the list is spoken in pairs of items, rather like this. Flour and water, currants and plums, sugar and things. 
Now these subtle rhymes give the piece vibrancy and life. We also have energy and action and what Le Guin calls dramatic phrasing, things like this. He baked it and he baked it until it was done brown. And, and the rhinoceros upset the oil stove with his nose and the cake rolled on the sand and the rhinoceros spiked that cake on the horn of his nose. If you listen carefully, you can sense the energy in these phrases. They're conveying more than information. They are carrying us, the readers, along. These phrases can also help to enrich aspects of character. For example, the industriousness of the Parsi, the chaos brought about by the rhinoceros. Now this next passage has a quite different voice. The protagonist is a middle-aged rancher called Tom, and he is coping with the onset of cancer, a cancer that he knows will kill him. His flock of chickens had already gone to roost, and the yard was quiet. Chickens will begin to announce themselves hours before sunrise, as if they can't wait for the day to get started, but they're equally interested in an early bedtime. Tom had grown used to sleeping through their early morning summons, all his family had, but in the last few weeks he'd been waking as soon as he heard the first hens peep, before even the roosters took up their valley. The sounds they made in those first dark moments of the day had begun to seem to him as soft and devotional as an Angelus bell. And he had begun to dread the evenings, to wish, like the chickens, to climb into bed and close his eyes as soon as shadows lengthened and light began to seep out of the sky. He led himself into the woodshed and sat down on a pile of stacked wood and rested his elbows on his knees and rocked himself back and forth. His body felt swollen with something inexpressible and he thought that if he could just weep he'd begin to feel better. He sat and rocked and eventually began to cry, which relieved nothing, but then he began to be racked with great coughing sobs that went on until whatever it was that had built up inside him had been slightly released. When his breathing eased, he went on sitting there rocking back and forth for a while, looking at his boots which were caked with manure and bits of hay. Then he wiped his eyes with his handkerchief and went into the house and sat down to dinner with his wife and son. So what do we get from this passage, which is from the book The Hearts of Horses by the author Molly Gloss? Well, first of all, there is this clear, calm presentation of the emotional experience that Tom is going through. And it's a counterpoint and in fact, therefore magnifies the desperation of his situation. And then there's the attention to emotional detail, which helps us to become intimate with him, the character. We feel Tom's pain. We feel the process that he's going through, the grief, the anguish. And it's not just his physical pain. It's the psychological trauma that he's going through as he faces this thing. And then, of course, this is not a sentimental work, but it is compassionate. And there are running through it the twin threads of faith and suffering. The connections are subtle, but they are there, for example, in the way in which the peep of the hens is compared to the soft devotional tones of the Angelus bell. And this passage is particularly good at showing how the desperation and calmness of Tom's situation is presented in the voice. And voice, if it's deployed effectively in your work, can enhance the reader's perception of character and their engagement with setting. Now my third example is quite different, but it also shows how voice can work to enhance setting and character. And this is from the book Slaughterhouse-Five by the author Kurt Vonnegut. Billy Pilgrim could not sleep on his daughter's wedding night. He was 44. The wedding had taken place that afternoon in a gaily striped tent in Billy's backyard. The stripes were orange and black. 
Billy and his wife, Valencia, nestled like spoons in their big double bed. They were jiggled by magic fingers. Valencia didn't need to be jiggled to sleep. Valencia was snoring like a bandsaw. The poor woman didn't have ovaries or a uterus anymore. They had been removed by a surgeon, by one of Billy's partners, in the new Holiday Inn. There was a full moon. Billy got out of bed in the moonlight. He felt spooky and luminous, felt as though he were wrapped in cool fur that was full of static electricity. He looked down at his bare feet. They were ivory and blue. Billy now shuffled down his upstairs hallway, knowing he was about to be kidnapped by a flying saucer. The hallway was zebra-striped with darkness and moonlight. The moonlight came into the hallway through doorways of the empty rooms of Billy's two children. Children no more. They were gone forever. Billy was guided by dread and the lack of dread. Dread told him when to stop. Lack of it told him when to move again. He stopped. He went into his daughter's room. Her drawers were dumped. Her closet was empty. Heaped in the middle of the room were all the possessions she could not take on a honeymoon. She had a princess telephone extension all her own, on a windowsill. Its tiny nightlight stared at Billy, and then it rang. Billy answered. There was a drunk at the other end. Billy could almost smell his breath, mustard gas and roses. It was a wrong number. Billy hung up. There was a soft drink bottle on the windowsill. Its label boasted that it contained no nourishment whatsoever. Now here, the author has carefully arranged the setting with the help of voice to reflect the slightly eerie, lonely feel of the protagonist as he walks around his home at night after his children have gone. The author uses the richness of imagery, things like Billy felt spooky and luminous, and his feet were ivory and blue. And he also emphasises the surreal nature of the moment, telling us that the protagonist knows that he is about to be kidnapped by a flying saucer. But it's the voice that really makes this passage with the attention to detail and the way in which it presents the feelings and moods that Billy is going through at this stage of his life and on that particular night. So my fourth example is from a book called Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott. Now, unlike the other examples, this is more of a commentary, a piece of non-fiction. So here's the passage. My young son Sam saw his first dead person last month. Two friends of ours had a baby who died and we went to spend the morning with them and the body of their son. He was five months old and weighed eight pounds, down from the ten he weighed at birth. He wore a white baptismal gown and lay in a big basket on top of his crib, covered with flower petals from the waist down, white as a rose. There were flowers and shrines everywhere, statues of the Buddha and pictures of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, because his mother is a Buddhist, and of Jesus, because his father is a Christian. Bryce looks like a small, concerned angel from someplace snowy. None of us, including Sam, could take our eyes off him. He looked like God. You what? My relatives asked when I mentioned this. You took Sam to see what? As in, what will you take him to see next? Brain surgery? Sam brought the baby two presents that morning, which he laid in the basket. One was a ball, in case you get to play catch on the other side. The other was a small time travel car from the film Back to the Future. Bryce's parents and I are still scratching our heads over that one. Now this is an incredibly moving and poignant passage, but why does it work? How does it capture the dynamic of Anne and her son visiting these parents in a moment of profound grief? 
Well, I think it does it rather like the passage from The Hearts of Horses, by presenting the moment with imagination, but without sentimentality. The simplicity of the language combines with the astute observations. We can imagine a baby looking like a small, concerned angel. We can understand how a child might bring small toys for a baby who has passed away to play with in the afterlife. And these things are presented with a sense of fellowship in the prose, a sharing of the grief without that sharing needing to be pointed out. So now we change tempo and direction for our next passage. And this is from a very different book. This is from William Gibson's classic cyberpunk novel, Neuromancer. The room on the 25th floor of the Chiba Hilton seemed enormous. It was 10 metres by eight, half of a suite. A white brawn coffee maker steamed on a low table by the sliding glass panels that opened onto a narrow balcony. Get some coffee in you, look like you need it. She took off her black jacket. The Fletcher hung beneath her arm in a black nylon shoulder rig. She wore a sleeveless grey pullover with plain steel zips across each shoulder. Bulletproof, Case decided, slopping coffee into a bright red mug. His arms and legs felt like they were made of wood. Case. He looked up, seeing the man for the first time. My name is Armitage. The dark robe was open to the waist, the broad chest hairless and muscular, the stomach flat and hard. Blue eyes so pale they made Case think of bleach. Sun's up, Case. This is your lucky day, boy. Case whipped his arm sideways and the man easily ducked the scalding coffee. Brown stain running down the imitation rice paper wall. He saw the angular gold ring through the left lobe. Special forces. The man smiled. Get your coffee case, Molly said. You're okay, but you're not going anywhere till Armitage has had his say. She sat cross-legged on the silk futon and began to field strip the Fletcher without bothering to look at it. Twin mirrors tracked as he crossed to the table and refilled his cup. Now this passage is very different in terms of voice and tone compared to what we've had so far, but it's still an effective and compelling example. So how does it work? Well, first of all, there is a brevity to the voice of this passage that gives it energy and tension and that completely suits the mood of the work. The occasional use of present tense description, for example in brown stain running down the imitation rice paper wall, helps to underline the impersonal, blunt nature of the work. So let's move on to another passage. For my final passage, I want to look at something that's in the first person point of view and also includes plenty of dialogue. And this passage is from The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. Ori came a few steps closer, stopped, waited, then darted forward again. She did this several times until she stood in front of me. Standing still, her hair spread in the air around her like a halo. She held both hands in front of her, just under her chin. She reached out and tugged my sleeve, then pulled her hand back. What did you bring me? She asked excitedly. I smiled. What did you bring me? I teased gently. She smiled and thrust her hand forward. Something gleamed in the moonlight. A key, she said proudly, pressing it on me. I took it. It had a pleasing weight in my hand. It's very nice, I said. What does it unlock? The moon, she said, her expression grave. That should be useful, I said, looking it over. That's what I thought, she said. That way, if there's a door in the moon, you can open it. She sat cross-legged on the roof and grinned up at me. Not that I would want to encourage that sort of reckless behaviour. 
I squatted down and opened my loot case. I brought you some bread. I handed her the loaf of brown barley bread wrapped in a piece of cloth. And a bottle of water. This is very nice as well, she said graciously. The bottle seemed very large in her hands. What's in the water, she asked as she pulled out the cork and peered down into it. Flowers, I said. And the part of the moon that isn't in the sky tonight. I put that there too. She looked back up. I already said the moon, she said with a hint of reproach. Just the flowers then, and the shine off the back of a dragonfly. I wanted a piece of the moon, but blue dragonfly shine was as close as I could get. She tipped the bottle up and took a sip. It's lovely, she said, brushing back several strands of hair that were drifting in front of her face. Ori spread out the cloth and began to eat. She tore small pieces from the loaf and chewed them delicately, somehow making the whole process look genteel. I like white bread, she said, conversationally between mouthfuls. Me too, I said, as I lowered myself into a sitting position, when I can get it. She nodded and looked around at the starry night sky and the crescent moon. I like it when it's cloudy too, but this is okay, it's cosy. Like the under thing. Under thing, I asked. She was rarely this talkative. I live in the under thing, Ori said easily. It goes all over. Do you like it down there? Ori's lies lit up. Holy God, yes, it's marvellous. You can just look forever. She turned to look at me. I have news, she said teasingly. What's that? I asked. She took another bite and finished chewing before she spoke. I went out last night. A sly smile. On top of things. Really? I said, not bothering to hide my surprise. How did you like it? It was lovely. I went looking around, she said, obviously pleased with herself. I saw Elodin. Master Elodin? I asked. She nodded. Was he on top of things too? She nodded again, chewing. Did he see you? Her smile burst out again, making her look closer to eight than eighteen. Nobody sees me. Besides, he was busy listening to the wind. She cupped her hands around her mouth and made a hooting noise. There was a good wind for listening last night, she added confidentially. While I was trying to make sense of what she said, Ori finished the last of her bread and clapped her hands excitedly. Now play, she said breathlessly. Play, play! Grinning, I pulled my lute out of its case. I couldn't hope for a more enthusiastic audience than Ori. One of the many interesting things about this passage is that it combines two features that have a big impact on voice, point of view and dialogue. And the point of view in this passage is first person. So that means that it's the protagonist directly telling us the story. He says things like, I did this, I talked to Ori, I heard this. And there are a lot of factors in this passage which combine to make it intimate. There is this first person point of view. There's the fact that there are only two characters who are clearly taking delight in each other's company. And there's also the fact there's quite a lot of dialogue. So how does voice work in this passage? Well, first there is the rhythm of the sentence structure. No short, jagged sentences here, as we saw in Neuromancer. Each character is allowed to say what they want to say, and each action is allowed to complete. There is the protagonist's attention to Ori, to her hair, to the gentle way in which she eats, to the gracious way in which she speaks. And then we also have that gentle pace of the whole thing. This is not rushed. It's neither energetically swift or tense. The smoothness of the prose and the gentle pace of the prose complements and enhances 
the mood. So that's six very different passages that we've looked at, specifically from the point of view of voice. And there's a number of lessons here. First of all, voice can enhance and strengthen all of the other dimensions of writing. For example, a voice that is sympathetic to the condition of the character and to their setting will make that character all the more compelling to the reader. And we saw this in the passage from the Hearts of Horses. Secondly, writing that sounds good often has a rhythm and an energy to it. It has a life of its own. And we saw that in the Kipling piece, The Just So Stories, where the radiant language and the rhythm of the work and the drama of the piece all serve to give it life and energy and make it attractive to us as readers. Thirdly, good writing makes the reader believe that they've learnt something and they're the better for it. And this applies whether it's entertaining writing, whether it's non-fiction. In being engrossed by a piece of prose, we feel as if we're learning and absorbing something, something interesting, something worth knowing. Fourthly, the voice of a piece of prose should complement its tone and style. For example, the passage from Neuromance is full of brevity and tension, befitting the overall tone of that piece. The Kipling passage again has an exotic and lively voice which suits its tone. The passage by Anne Lamott is compassionate but does not have sentimentality which completely suits the tone of it. Fifthly, voice can be impacted by features like point of view and dialogue. If we look at this passage from William Gibson's Neuromancer, it's starkly different in tone from the passage from Patrick Rothfuss's The Name of the Wind. Point of view, dialogue and attention to detail are all elements that work with the voice of a piece to accentuate the mood, whether it's blunt or delicate, cold and hard or warm and intimate. And all of these things underlie the core truth about voice in writing. And it's this, Writing that sounds good captures and enthralls the reader because it can enhance all of the other dimensions of the writing. And that can be plot or character, point of view or setting. When the voice of a piece of writing is working well, it takes all of the aspects of that writing and enriches them and compels the reader to be absorbed by what they're reading. So I hope you are in no doubt about how critical voice is. The question remains though, how do we find and use these techniques to make the voice of our own writing powerful and compelling and attractive to the readers? I think there are three basic things to bear in mind here. First of all, understand the techniques of voice. Secondly, apply them within your own writer's voice. And thirdly, don't be afraid to edit your work. Now, the first of these three things can be achieved by reading widely and thinking about those techniques and features that different writers use so well. Thinking about some of the techniques and aspects that I've highlighted in this podcast. But that's probably the easy bit. The second requirement is more difficult. Finding your writing voice. If you can find your writing voice, then you will be able to naturally and effectively produce work that just sounds great. And it will sound great because you have been able to deploy these techniques almost without realizing it, almost without trying. And finally, as I'd mentioned in the last episode, episode 76, editing is a vital part of this process. And I think it's an important part as well of tuning and enhancing the voice of your work. Use the techniques that I mentioned in that last episode, including being prepared to cut as you edit, reading your work aloud, leaving it for a while and then coming back to it and using others, including professional editors, to review it. It's not enough 
just to know these techniques. If you're going to deploy them effectively, you need to find your voice. And you can check out episode 73 of the podcast for insights into how to do just that. So in this episode, I have quoted from the following works. Just So Stories by Rudyard Kipling, published by Wordsworth Editions. The Hearts of Horses by Molly Gloss, published by Pan. Slaughterhouse Five by Kurt Vonnegut, published by Vintage Classics. Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott, published by Anchor Books. Neuromancer by William Gibson, published by HarperCollins. And The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss, published by Galantz. I'll get some show notes up on Pinterest. We also have a group on Goodreads. Just go to goodreads.com, look up the Creative Writers Tool Belt there. And you can go to my website. It's andrewjchamberlain.com. If you want to drop me a line, please do. I'm always interested to hear from listeners about the projects they're working on. It's andrew at andrewjchamberlain.com. So that's all for now. And so until next time, thank you for listening and goodbye. Thank you.